Hey, it's Greg Brady. So much to get to on the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, October 13th. So the border's opening. What are the conditions involved in it? We get into some of that. We also get into the really sensitive subject of how to cover and how to talk about and our conversations and whether they should be different from public health conversations and pronouncements when a younger person succumbs to COVID-19. Now, a 14-year-old passed away in Alberta. It's awful. It's a terrible story. It's a nightmare for any parent. This child had pre-existing conditions and comorbidities. When we talk about that, does that minimize the tragedy? Or is this something parents should be aware of only so it doesn't create a sense of panic, fear, and alarm? It's a really fine line. I get it. There are no easy answers whatsoever for that particular conversation. We talk about hockey culture and its toxicity with the author of a new book. Savina Vora Miller will join us. We'll talk about who needs a booster and who doesn't, and a restaurant owner that is some kind of ticked off that the Minister of Tourism, Lisa McLeod, said she'd meet with restaurant owners and managers yesterday and did not do so. There's a lot of layers to that conversation. It's the Toronto Today podcast. Glad you found us. Here we go. The land border, as Dave Bradley told you in his lead story, is reopening. Here's the big question. And right now, we don't have an answer. I'm encouraged, and I feel really positive about this. The border's been closed for upwards of 18 months now. We closed it in March of 2020 when we just closed our life. And I haven't crossed the border. Some of you might have driven across in January, February. Uh, November last crossing for me is Labor Day weekend of 2019. That's the last time I went uh, to go to Ann Arbor for a football game um, to do a little bit of shopping. We went with another family uh, and saw a Michigan game, 110,000 people there came back and you don't know, right? You don't know when it's the last time to do something. The big caveat, what about testing? And I'm not, I, I am not of the mind that we should be forced to get a test and show it at the at that land border, show it at the Peace Bridge, show it at Niagara Falls, wherever you cross. Um, a shout out to Lewiston. Sometimes that's the best way to get across. I don't think I'm giving anything away there. Most of you already know that. And, and I don't know that we should have to show proof on our way back with a U.S.-based test, like going to CVS or Walgreens, more stores that I like. In the United States, you can get a lot of Walgreens with the lack of tax and whatnot. You can do really well at Walgreens or CVS. Get that CVS extra care card going. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, we don't know the exact date. I'd mentioned in the six o'clock hour, and this is just me saying this. So you can come at me with uh, with the forks and spoons if if I'm wrong, but it'll be before November 21st. I've heard other other sources saying, well, it'll be November 21st. That's not what the U.S. officials want. They want the land border open. They don't want to open it up on Thanksgiving week. But that's, again, basically a third, fourth level of uh, like the Kevin Bacon game. That's a third, fourth level of information that I'm getting from somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who's married to somebody that would know. That would know. Now, they haven't announced it. Maybe that announcement's coming, and that uh, announcement period is coming at 1030 today. We've got a lot of reaction to this, and I'm sure we will all day long on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm curious to know, because most people, I'd say four to five people texting me so far this morning, are saying, uh, no test. Please, heavens above, no test on one side, no test on the other. There's the inconvenience. There's the money. There's the money. That's a big deal. If you're already going over to, you want to go to a Bills game with with three of your pals, you want to take the family, um, it's a sporting event, it's something that you want to take your kids to or it's visiting relatives, and you got four of you in the car and you're popping, let's say, let's just say, you're spending $600 plus for four um, PVR, uh, excuse me, PCR tests. Uh, no, that's not, you're going to say no. It's one thing if you're going, well, we're all in to fly to Hawaii. We're all in and we're going to, you know, California, which is the trip I want to do with my family at some point in time before both my teenagers don't want to spend any time with us as parents. Those days are right in our face right now. So we want to move on this. You can tell my sense of urgency about it. Um, we'll see what that what transpires and what gets announced at 1030 today. But it's eminently positive. Is it long overdue? Yes. Um, but we'll take it. We'll take it. And there's nothing you can do about the past. There's nothing you can do about who advocated for this, who advocated for that, it's or who didn't. It's important to point it out at the time. 
We've had the border open to American travelers via car for what are we talking? Two plus months now. I feel like it's 10, 11 weeks. I think it was in the middle of August, maybe a little bit sooner. But that said, uh, it's coming now for us. It's coming before Thanksgiving. We'll got we'll have all of December, all of January, and hopefully all of eternity, because hopefully we never do this again. I want to bring this up uh, in this segment. You might have seen yesterday, 33 new COVID deaths reported in Alberta. And uh, they pointed out that one of them was a 14-year-old boy. Uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is the chief medical officer of health in Alberta and made the notation that the 14-year-old had uh, a pre-existing condition. There were a lot of complexities that played a role in their death. This is really, really, really difficult. Um, Many people are excoriating Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Look, also, uh, you know, in in the online community, excoriation is not unusual. And if you're going there as a public figure, especially in public health, you will get yours. It's unfortunate because for every thing that's a fair criticism of you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't say that right, there's seven, eight others that just want to pile on. It is a sport, okay? And that doesn't mean that there's not some valid outcomes. John Gruden, the Las Vegas Raiders coach, is an excellent example of, of you know, you're paid to lead, you're paid to lead men, you talk way, way, way too insensitive and too much like a Neanderthal to continue to do that, you're out, okay? That's a big difference than the piling on of Dr. Hinshaw yesterday. But here's what I'd say. I I think it's more the timing than the point out. Some people are calling it ableist to point out. There's that word, okay? That's That's a tricky word because there's two things happening here. One, should, you know, should people be blamed for their pre-existing condition and their complexities and their DNA and who they are and how they were born or what they acquired as they moved along in life? Of course not. Of course not. Who signed up to live in a long-term care home? Virtually no one. But it's incumbent upon us to point out that those were the people that were most potential to be victimized and to fall fatally to COVID-19. Are we shaming people in long-term care? No. So you can make the case that should we be doing it any differently when you lose a child as opposed to a parent? I could make the case, yes, because that's not how it's supposed to happen. It's a very simple process. You're supposed to bury your parents. You're not supposed to bury your children. And those who have had to do so, um, it rips me up. It rips me up beyond belief to even fathom it. So I get that people are saying Dr. Hinshaw is being insensitive. Dr. Hinshaw is putting blame on this family. This child is blameless for getting COVID and dying, whether they have a pre-existing condition or not. And you can lay at the doorstep of Dr. Hinshaw and the Premier Jason Kenney the fatality of this child. That's what some are saying. Now, I'm just laying out the arguments here, and probably I, I would think It's so complex and so much about COVID has been that you need nuance and you need subtly. And it's not, well, it's this side's right. No, that side's right. No, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Like it almost always is. Like it almost always is. So you can have the empathy out, out, you know, out your outpouring your heart for the poor child and their poor family. They will never think about this again And they will never not think about her thinking, what could have been done? What could we have done? What what policies could have existed to prevent this from happening? But let me say this. There is an element where I do think public health has to provide public reassurance of the rarity of this case. Am I wrong on that? You have to reassure the public that this is an incredibly unusual event. Not dissimilar, not dissimilar to a child dying from the flu. Doesn't minimize their existence. It doesn't make it any less a tragedy. And it doesn't downplay the death of a teenage boy who's 14. And we already know the online community. How do you walk the fine line? How do you do the dance? How do you make everybody happy? Anybody who's been on it, anybody, anybody who's given uh, you know effort and oxygen uh, has oftentimes found the reality and especially i think this has been accelerated like you know like a fast and furious car from one of those nine movies during covid 
to the point where you throw up your hands and you go, what's the point? What's the point when 30 or 40 percent of the people are going to hate what you're saying, even if 50 or 60 percent love it? So I think public health has a responsibility, but has to do it in a sensitive manner. Was yesterday the day? Probably not. But do you want to create mass alarm and panic that 14 year olds with no, let me follow me here, okay, with no pre existing medical conditions and no comorbidities are dropping dead from COVID? Can you have anyone thinking that? You want to clarify that that's not happening while still pointing out, pointing out how tragic and devastating this outcome is. It's a hard segment for me to do. I, you know, some of you are texting. It's hard to listen to. Well, it's hard for me to talk about. But that's what that's. But they're they're saying they understand. So, and we all know bedside manner with a doctor matters. Well, bedside manner with public health officials matters also. It matters also. And we've seen. I don't envy politicians who've had to stand up in their legislature or stand up in front of a microphone and give you the basic goods while still having a modicum of humanity and sensitivity that this is a virus that most people are conquering. This is a virus that the vast majority of kids have, have it has no impact on them. Like, that's the data. That's what it tells us. It doesn't bring this 14-year-old back. You know that, and I know that. So we've got all these frightening stats that we have to have, how would I put it, clarity and understanding and perspective about. And yet all we want to do is hug this family and have compassion and not utilize them as a, a public pawn to say, you see, healthy kids live. Kids like this child have a tougher time. Nobody wants to say that. And you know, listening to me, that I'm not saying it. How do we maintain understanding the dignity of that loss of life? While also understanding the government has to choose directions, has to have a roadmap, has to take that fork in the road sometimes, veer left instead of right. So how do we do that? It's really, really tricky. What are the answers? I don't have them. I was on the show in the summer, when uh, uh, in, in the spring, when a dad lost a 13-year-old daughter. You might remember this story back in April. A 13-year-old girl died. She was COVID positive. Her mom was in hospital for COVID. Okay, you might remember this now. The father was an essential worker. They hadn't; he had been vaccinated, uh, but the child we were unable to vaccinate the kid yet. None of our kids were vaccinated when this incident happened. But, and this is an important but, to allay public fear and to reassure people who were parents whose kids might get a cough periodically, um, that that father did not. Have anyone look at the daughter? It's awful. Like it, it, it's doing the story live, ripped me up, and it's ripping me up talking about it right now. He'll live with that the rest of his existence. But he didn't want the daughter going into hospital also. That was also the time when our hospitals were flooded and we were shuttling patients, airlifting them or driving them to other hospitals. Oh, you're sick in Toronto? You're going to Sudbury. Oh, you're sick in Ottawa? Uh, you're going to Elliott Lake because there's actually a bed there and we don't have any. So the dad was petrified about that. And that teenage girl died in her house with no medical professional once looking in on her, once consulting with the dad in person or even on a Zoom call. It's horrifying. It's such a difficult place we're in right now. Okay, so we're happy the border's open. We're happy about this. I'm happy you're going to the Leafs game, the soccer game. I'm happy you. my kid wanted to go to a movie last night. I'm happy he's not hiding under blankets in his room. But this is the risk we're admitting. Like, we are walking this tightrope. What do we say? How do we say it? I don't envy public health. I thought the tweets were a little bit insensitive. But I also understand the need to tell people, to tell people that there's this tragic outcome is incredibly, incredibly against the odds and rare. And I don't know how to balance that line probably any more than Dr. Hinshaw or, or Dr. Kieran Moore or Dr. DeVille or whoever. This is where I do feel the empathy. Whether I disagree with public policy, it's nothing but empathy. Uh, this is a dire time, uh, a dire time and, and, a, and an important next few weeks for restaurant owners. They're mad. I think they have a right to be, um, especially in a post-vaccination universe. A year ago at this time, 
you might be able to make the case. We're not sure about the spread. We're not sure about safeguarding this and that. Weather's turning and, and we won't all be able to be out on patios. And let's face it, some people don't want to eat outside. They want to eat indoors. That's the restaurant experience. Yesterday, uh, Lisa McLeod promised to be on a call. She's the heritage minister. Uh, and instead, there were staff on that particular call. Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun reports that a, uh, a, a PR person asked participants, please don't speak to the media about this and say Lisa McLeod isn't on the line. Wow, um, that's really something. And of course, Friday it comes down. Well, the Leafs, the Raptors, all these concerts, they can play to full crowds. 19,500 people tonight watching Leafs Canadians. Expect that. Uh, restaurants can't seat people of eight together. Uh, and there's masks to and from when we know going to the hockey game tonight that people are going to wear their masks, they'll get to their seat, and they will not put it on again. They'll eat, they'll drink, they'll sit. There's not going to be compliance there. Uh, I want to bring on a, uh, a restaurant uh, owner of Bistro on Avenue. Uh, she is Cindy Cern. Uh, Cindy, thanks very much for making the time. I really do appreciate it this morning. Thank you. What is the level of, uh, is it disappointment? Is it anger? Does it fall in between? You've dealt with a lot. You've dealt with staffing issues. You've been open. You've been closed. You've been open. You've been closed. You're not getting a lot of municipal support. Um, I, you know, I, I think you're the industry that people look at the most and say there should be steam coming out of people's ears. I think there there is, and mine as well, even though I didn't expect I would feel that way. Yeah. Uh, I think um, it was a real slap in the face at not ha- at Lisa McLeod not showing up. It basically said, you know, just pander to them for the weekend and stall it, and uh, we're really not taking them too seriously just yet. Uh, I think the bigger question of um, do we uh, continue to restrict capacity, if you're going to have 17,000 at uh, the arena tonight, then yes, have full capacity indoors for restaurants. But I'm not even a full believer in full capacity yet. I'd like to get the 5 to 11-year-olds vaccinated. Um, these people at the uh, arena tonight, they, the doctors are saying they can still be exposed, take it home to their families, and it goes into the schools. I would have liked them to have waited maybe a month until there's more vaccinations with the children. That's my opinion. Yeah. Um, I feel for the restaurants, indoor dining, like you said, open, shut, open, shut. We purposely didn't open and shut, open and shut. Um, I decided to pivot. I mean, we're open now, but during the last two years, we pivoted and said, let's build up that takeout and, and delivery system in the event we have to shut down again, because it's not fair to hiring people, firing them. It's uh, not fair to our business. Uh, so I'm so conflicted over the whole thing, but I'm so angry that I, I think he hurried this full capacity thing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You're not the only one who thinks that way, and that's certainly a valid opinion. Let me ask you, what what in terms of distancing, Cindy, what in terms of capacity do you think restaurants uh, are, are ready for? What's a step forward that you say, at the, that, at the very minimum, at the absolute least, we should try this because we think we can handle it and, and do this safely? What's, what's one thing? I do think that you do the six feet distancing based on your um, square footage, have all the protocols in place, have those vaccine checkers at the front door. Um, and I, I think it could be safe, but you have to have those protocols. I've been to other restaurants on patios. I've seen people walk inside to them, to the washroom without a mask. So it just, ha- these restaurants, they have a right to complain. I'm totally on side with them, but they have to be vigilant in their practices in order to gain any credibility. Do we get to a point, Cindy, where we will look and say, there's there's a look, we've talked about the concept of hygiene theater and some of it is over cleaning. And we wanted people a year ago, especially 15 months ago, to feel as safe as they could wherever they were, you know, at grocery stores or wherever. Knowing what we know now about the virus, my perspective on restaurants, tell me if I'm wrong, is I think if you're if you're asking for a vaccine passport and proof of vaccination, that once we're inside, you don't have to mandate masks to get up and go to the bathroom. It's an airborne virus. It's there. And I'm curious to know what you think about employees. Will employees say at a certain point, I'm fully vaccinated. All the customers are. When do we get to take masks off? What's your thought on that? Maybe it's not now, but do you, do you have a benchmark in mind for when it would be there? I don't know. Maybe we're an anomaly, but our, our staff wanted to be double vaccinated. I mm-hmm. would have mandated it anyhow, but yeah. they wanted it. They want to wear masks. I think people are still a little fearful. I think, um, listen, we didn't expect to have a vaccine a year out. So if I call it a young disease, it really it really is. 
but two years is a hell of a lot of time for all of us. So if they're going to start, if they're going to continue with restrictions, then I think the support programs need to be extended. Um, there's, uh, and we're not in a, we're not a uh, homogenous industry. Fine dining can't do delivery because the food doesn't hold. No. So I think you have to have, yes, reopening across the board, but I still think we have to have the safety protocols. We're just going into the winter just now. And, um, you know, I watch, I'm a big fan of Dr. Isaac Bogot. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, go ahead, do all of this, but be prepared to pivot. So even there, no one's certain. It's like the data isn't there. What about waning efficacy? I mean, I had mine in February. So we're going to go into booster shots. We're going into flu shots and not knowing whether you have the flu or COVID. So it's gonna, it's not, I don't think it's going to be an easy winter. I don't mean to sound cynical. I want restaurants fully reopened, but I want it done safely. Are there are there employees right now, Cindy, that would prefer if it was an option um, to take the mask off? Would they like to wait tables? Obviously, in an ideal world, they would. But but do they want that now? Would they want that sooner rather than later? And and they'd prefer it. And then, and they would say, "It's my life. I'm vaccinated. I, I I'll take my chances." And and would you allow that? I haven't had that experience from my staff. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't I wouldn't allow it. Through, I, I would like to see how we get through the winter. It is an airborne disease. We're now just mm. going inside. I don't think uh, the dad is there to say, yeah, take off your mask. And, and I, I haven't heard that from them at all. Mm. I mean, they get to go on breaks, go outside. Yes, you take your mask off. I wear it all day. So, um, no, I think still think the mask will be here for a very long time. I intend to wear one for all sorts of uh, viruses. Okay. Uh, Cindy Stern is owner of uh, Bistro on Avenue. Uh, you can find them, by the way, because we should tell you, and what a great place it is, at 1988 Avenue Road in Toronto. I'm glad you brought that out about the takeout because, you know, this was seen, and I, I, I don't know that the province necessarily painted this way as some kind of substitute, but I don't need you. you. You, you'd be the first to raise your hand and go, that's not an economic substitute. People want to come in and have a glass of wine before dinner or meet friends at the bar. Then they go to their table. There's money that's spent on alcohol. There's money that's spent on entrees or dessert that um, a $40, $50 takeout order just doesn't cover. And it sure doesn't cover tips for younger people trying to make ends meet in Toronto that are waiting and, and serving at your tables, does it? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Again, we built ours up, but I'm not going to be selfish and say, yes, our takeout support will support us. Uh, I want all, all restaurants aren't like that. You have sports bars where people come in and really want to watch a lot of sports. Mm-hmm. And like you said, and the fine dining, they're, they're the ones hurting a lot. Where, uh, what, what is the next step? Again, people are angry that, that Minister McLeod wasn't on this call. Um, is, there, uh, is there another place to go? It, it, this is basically begging and pleading with the government. I'll ask this as well. Do you, need mayor, do you need the mayor of Toronto? Do you need city councillors to raise their hand a little bit more? I mean, I, I know it hasn't been easy. I know it's not. Politicians didn't sign up for this. But I don't see enough advocacy from people in the city of Toronto pushing the province and saying, like, there are constituents too. They did vote for us. They are people... <laughs> that 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 live in Toronto. Um, do you want to see more at a municipal level in terms of support? I do, and I have. Um, but I think um, uh, Mayor Tory does has to do a, a really big balancing act. I mean, he's he needs money from the Ontario government. Yeah. Um, so so you're right. So much of um, politics has invaded this, and uh, I think even the most recent decision for the stadiums opening up. Surely MLSE can go at fifty percent. They can afford fifty percent capacity, but uh, the restaurant mm. owners can't. Um, those are political decisions as well, right? There's an election in nine months. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, Lisa Sin- McLeod, seriously, I, it was the biggest slap in the face. I have, like, she's the Minister of Tourism, so what is she doing at a hospital reopening announcement? <sighs> and with, when she even said there's two other cabinet colleagues there. So uh, she didn't want to speak to the restaurant people because they didn't have a satisfactory answer for them is what I'm presuming. Well, is, is that everything right there? I mean, unless this is bad reporting, and I'm inclined to think it isn't, uh, when you tell the restaurant owners, hey, you know, p- please don't mention that Minister McLeod wasn't here today. That's kind well, of a warning just, sign, that's right? Stupidity. <laughs> that's that's stupidity, but she did promise them on Friday, and I was watching the, uh, the news, and yeah. um, it, 
there was they were excited. Somebody's going to listen to them finally, and then they didn't. So that's uh, I, I am very angry about that. I understand the emotion. Hey, Cindy, I hope you do have a uh, uh, you know a great lead up to the Christmas season. I hope your place is busy. I hope it goes better than than maybe some people, including yourself, think it's going to go. I I think our fall has already. So I have to hope, right? We have to be positive about what the next That's four right. six months bring. Yep. Now we just need the government on side, and we're ready to go. Hear that? Thank you very much for the time today. Good luck. Thank you, Cindy Stern, owner of Bistro on Avenue. There's something about hockey. Um, I've played, you know, rec league, uh, inline hockey, roller hockey, as it's called. I know you ice hockey people don't think that's real hockey, but whatever. So I'm playing in the States. I play for about 10 years on a team and I've got uh, in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and I've got four or five. There's about 10 of us on the team and four or five Jewish teammates. So uh, two different times. And then we saw it happen a third time and we knew what was happening. One of our players, and I told him to log on this morning to listen to the segment. His name's Brad Schiffman. He lives in Michigan. He lives still in Farmington Hills. Uh, we had a lot of fun playing together. He is victimized by slurs during the game. And you can't imagine, like, this is rec league hockey. Nobody's watching us. Even if there's nobody's girlfriend wants to come watch us play roller hockey on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock. Nobody, there's too much on television. It's not going to happen. But twice he's victimized by what I would consider anti-Semitic slurs. He hears them. We don't. So he's in the corner, gives somebody a hard check. Somebody turns and says, and then he goes nuts. He goes nuts. And it's up to us to get out there. Honestly, it's like bench clearing stuff. Or, or if you're already on one time, I was already in the ice. The other time we all came over the bench and he's upset and he's crying. And it's not fun seeing a 35, 36 year old man cry uh, because of something unspeakably awful thrown at him in a rec league game. But we can't let him attack the other team and chop him down like like he's cutting wood with a hockey stick. We're going to prison. We don't, we don't want the cops to come to this game, but it's wrong and it's awful. We just saw a Ukrainian player um, suspended for making a racist gesture unpeeling a banana at a black North American player. We just saw... The story of Logan Mayu, the first round draft pick uh, of the Montreal Canadiens, who begged and pleaded, don't draft me. The Canadians did it anyway because of something unspeakably awful he did during a consensual um, occasion, consensual sexual moment with a girl. But he betrayed her trust, uh, you know, times 10, so much so that it was deemed illegal. This stuff just seems to happen in hockey. I don't think we see it on the golf course or the tennis court or even slow pitch or in kids sports. What's up with that? The book is called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. And joining us, one of the co-authors, along with Jess Vina Shaw, uh, we talk right now to Evan Moore. Evan, I lay that story out about what happened to me. Uh, I lay that. I think everyone has a hockey story like that, where something boils over into the parking lot or there's something on the ice. And it's just they're not the normal insults. I love the sport. I love playing it. I love watching it. Um, but it exists like we can't even deny this anymore, can we? Oh, not at all. I mean, and uh, thank you and your listeners for having me on and buying the book. Anything's great so far. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I have stories like that, even though I haven't been the personal victim of, of, of racial slurs. But I've played on teams where that stuff has happened. And, I mean, you know, rec league and what we call it here in the States, uh, you know, obviously uh, beer league, uh, there's a group of people who, who work out their aggression through this and, and there's also some people who want to have fun, but there are also people who believe that this is the next step toward the NHL, and they don't realize like that the rosters are set at this point. Is this sport more than any other, based on your your stories, your research, you know, even hearing from uh, you know so-called weekend warriors like me? Is there something about the sport that is too exclusive and that isn't welcoming to outsiders? And what I mean by that, in Canada or the United States or in Europe is people that aren't white. Is, is there is there is it something about this sport that other sports end up being more inclusive to your to your research? It is. I mean, that's not only because my story is a little bit different, you know, being on the south side of Chicago growing up and and watching hockey, being a fan. I've been I've been a, involved in the sport for most of my life either as a fan, as a journalist, as a writer and now these days as a hockey parent. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's uh, something you just notice over time. And every, anytime I've like, written stories about this and I was done with it and I sent it all to my editor, 
I will still hear from people who wanted to talk, and there wasn't a shortage of content when writing this book. In fact, we had, I, in fact, we had to turn people away at one point who wanted to tell their stories and wanted to be in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even in other times I've written about the sport, I mean, it's there's a problem when there's so much content that we had to turn, we had to leave stuff off the table. You know, when we were editing the book. It was just so much content that kind of tells you right there that there's a serious problem. Evan Moore is our guest. The book's called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. And just as we're speaking in four minutes, like two absolute, you know, divergent text messages come to me. One is like, lay off hockey. It's not that bad. Two is, I love hockey. I'm so glad you're talking about this. And that's the dis- that's the disconnect, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's people that recognize the problem and want to do something about it and want to fix it so our kids don't have to be sitting here having these conversations like you and I are having. And there's parents that that will just deny that it exists and say, what about John Gruden? What about soccer and all these racial? Uh, and they're right. They're not wrong. But hockey, hockey's a problem onto itself. Like, we're focused on hockey. Some people don't want to talk about it that way. Well, I'll just say this. Um, I'm not writing a book about other sports. I wrote a book about hockey because I love hockey. Yeah. The greatest sport in the world. Stanley Cup, the greatest trophy ever. We had, I, I love the sport. And that's why... I wrote about it. If I want to write about the other sports, I write about it. I'm writing, I want a book about hockey. And, you know, um, just think about this. We turned on our manuscript January of, tw- of this year. How much has happened in hockey since then, in the hockey world? I mean, it goes to tell you right there, you know, we didn't even get into the Blackhawks thing. We didn't no. get into the, the recent thing. We didn't get into, you know, a bunch of other stuff that just happened over time. I mean, it's, you talk, I mean, for instance, that of, I wrote about a player who played, uh, I think, Division Two or Division Three hockey in the state. A player for the team calls him a slur. He goes after the guy. You know, he gets uh, the player who actually said the slur gets the game misconduct, and it's uh, and the player who's just minding his own business got a two game suspension. Well, that's what that's what we told our guy that story. Like again, my friend Brad Schiffman's listening to the segment. And we said, "Do you want to go? Like, do you want to?" It's the Des- Denzel Washington line from Training Day. Do you want to go to jail or do you want to go home? Because I know it hurts. I know it's awful. I'd love to punch that guy, you know, right in his Adam's apple. But you take a you you carve him up with a hockey stick. Guess what? That slur isn't going to earn you. The terrible slur that he calls you isn't going to earn you the sense you get for uh, you know for giving him twenty eight stitches across the cheek. It's not. Right. You know, it's something I think about. You mean, I mentioned in the book how I was called a, a racist slur by a teammate. It was another sport. And when the whole thing like go bubbled up with Akeem Alou, I, I personally understood where he was coming from. And I like him. I kept it to myself and, and I, I internalized and I just knew like nothing, no one, anything could do wasn't going to do anything about it. Well, this kid's, you know, drinking buddies or go to the same churches as the culture or something like that. Right. So it's, why when, you know, when the whole, all these stuff in hockey, hockey has happened over the years and the way it came out, particularly for him and for another player, literally every player to a, per, to a person has some sort of story yeah. about, you know, homophobia, racism, um, sexism, you know, ableism, and we get into all those topics in the book. The book's called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. I got time for one more, but I want you to stretch out the answer if you want. Are you seeing more of, you know, the second part of your title is How to Fix It. Does it come from the grassroots, Evan, or does it come from exemplary behavior at the professional level to where to where we don't see the Montreal Canadiens draft Logan Mayu, to where there isn't a Stan Bowman scenario where we're wondering who knew what when with one of the elite NHL teams? Or is it is it, as you say, in the arena that we drive to two miles away from our house where we hear something in the stands or we hear something in the locker room and somebody is brave enough to say, that doesn't happen here. That behavior, that talk, that doesn't happen here. I know the easy answer is a combination of both, but is it one more than the other? I mean, this. Think about what happened here in Chicago a few seasons ago with Devontae Smith Pelly doing the Caps uh, Blackhawks game when he was in a penalty box and fans were yeah. know, standing basketball at him. And we all know hockey culture where you chant basketball as a black player is the M word. And like, do we does Gary Bettman like go to these youth leagues from the top down and say, "Hey, cut the crap," or is this something insidious and insular? You know, something that goes on at home where kids are, are seeing and picking up things, you know, because we know how it is in the rank with hockey culture and everything else. And, you know, this stuff is, is 
it's insular and kids pick up, you know, what they see. They see, you know, uh, one of their friends, you know, saying something to another player on another team. They're going to, you know, they want to belong and they're going to fall in and they're going to, you know, start exhibiting that same, that same behavior. Yeah. And in terms of fixing it, you know, like it's, can it be fixed? We're not entirely sure, but we have, we put in the books of resources and, and get the people talking. We don't want, you know, because the thing is, is using the, the current vernacular and everything else in the current discourse and people, some folks seem to believe, and it seems like some of your listeners seem to believe like that we're trying to quote unquote cancel hockey. No, it's not the case. We're trying to, we want to make it better. We want to make it, you know, more inclusive. And when people who know, who aren't from traditional hockey communities, you know, start to be it, start to go gang interest in the sport, you know, of course you're going to see discourse because you have people yeah. out there who, who grew up loving the sport and they, they, go, they look at it in a punk rock mentality. Like I like that band before you did. This is my band. And we need to, you know, bust that up a little bit. Yeah, you, yeah, it's got to be uh, exploded. And and I I believe in teachable moments, uh, teachable moments until I don't, until you show that that you can't be taught. And that that happens a ton in uh, in the hockey community. And as we saw again, it's a it's the different sport. But with John Gruden, it's not an isolated incident. It's not a slip of the tongue. It's a pattern of behavior that tells you who people are. The book's called Game Misconduct: Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. I'd love to follow up down the line with you. Thanks for making the time and good luck with the book. Uh, thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Greg. Appreciate you. You bet. Evan Moore uh, joining us. The big news is obviously the border. Uh, Canadians are going to be able to drive across if they're fully vaccinated. But we still, as Dave Bradley just pointed out, we've got questions about where that goes. Uh, Sabina Vora Miller, our guest, we have her on pretty frequently. Sabina, it's great to have you on as always. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. How are you? Totally great. And I and and because I think that's good news, and sometimes we need good COVID news. I think we've had a pretty good uh, fall. I think a lot of us are, uh, are are moving and reclaiming those fully vaccinated of us are reclaiming some of the things that we've lost. I want to get your reaction to that to that border news, and most specifically, I think most Canadians, you and me, and a bunch of other people, millions of people. Are, are just wondering, will be curious if, if Canadians are going to be allowed back in after their border trip in a car without a test. That's going to be the big uh, backbreaker for a lot of people. And they say, well, I'm not sure I want to do it then because the test can be costly and the test can be uh, time consuming. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of families that people have left behind during the pandemic, especially between U.S. and Canada. Um, and I think the border opening really helps you reunite families that have stayed away for the last almost two years. So I think in that way, it is great news. But I caution everyone that it, it's not time to put our guards down yet. Um, we know that, that, you know, the situation is very precarious here in Canada. We have many provinces that are still struggling um, with respect to COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations as well. So we do have to make sure that we are being careful and cautious. Um, and if that means when we come back getting a test done, um, I think that uh, is definitely something that we should be considering. But absolutely, the fact that people who are fully vaccinated are getting some of these um, aspects back is fantastic um, and really tells us that we're slowly but surely moving towards normalcy. Yeah, I noticed like New Brunswick, every time we think something's, uh, you know, stamped down, uh, not out, obviously, because of, as I think we'd all agree, the endemic nature of the virus, New Brunswick pops up and they've got problems with capacity. In Ontario, from what I see, and I want to know if you can corroborate this, like we are doing well. ICUs and hospitals, hospitalizations aren't, uh, are, aren't getting hammered and certainly not at all by fully vaccinated people. We're doing better than some predictions were, were out there in July and August, right? We definitely are. I think that this, uh, what we've seen so far, has been very reassuring, and I really hope we continue mm. vaccinating everyone um, here in Ontario, especially once we get the kids vaccinated. We, you know, we should see even more momentum with respect to some getting somewhat close to herd immunity. Mm. Um, but again, we've seen from other provinces that even if you are, you know, highly vaccinated, it's just not sufficient because there's still. I mean, even if you're looking at, you know, 20% of the population unvaccinated, that's enough to actually drive out our healthcare capacity. And we're seeing this happening in Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, for instance, New Brunswick, as you mentioned as well. And so, you know, again, like we are in a position where we're doing good so far, much better than we'd initially anticipated for Ontario. And that's because we've been very cautious here. We still are masking. We're doing, a, you know, a lot of testing over here. Um, all of these measures is, is really what's helping us 
um, stay underneath, um, you know, that that capacity issue that other provinces are running into an issue with. Sabina Vora Miller, our guest virologist. Um, people do ask about boosters. I sat there uh, at Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday and I asked my parents who are 77 and 75. Do you know if you're eligible for a booster? Will you get one? And then, you know, they're they're pretty astute, but they didn't have answers. If you can lay out some of the specifics as to who needs a booster and who doesn't. And again, it doesn't always go along lines of ages. There's there's comorbidities and, and medical histories clearly involved, suggesting some should get it before others. Yes, exactly. And so at this point, I mean, you know, what NASI is suggesting with respect to boosters are really people who belong to two categories. So one would be seniors who live in long-term care or other congregate settings should be offered a booster of either Pfizer or Moderna, um, as long as it's at least six months after their second dose. Mm-hmm. And the second category is those who, um, who are moderately to severely immunocompromised. Um, and they should receive a booster of either Pfizer or Moderna. Um, but this can be given, in fact, 28 days after the last dose. And the reason is because these are the two um, you know, categories where we're seeing that perhaps we do need to boost the immunity. Um, you know, and, and there are also people who might be at a higher, higher risk of actually getting severe COVID, such as those who live in congregate settings, the seniors that live in congregate settings. But so far, you know, vaccines are very effective in preventing severe illness and hospitalization. We actually just um, saw new data coming out from ICES. Um, and, and it, you know, the, the vaccine effectiveness against not just symptomatic but severe illness is still incredibly high. I mean, if you look at Ontario, only 3% of those who are hospitalized due to COVID are fully vaccinated. So it is telling us that our vaccines are still incredibly effective. What we just need to find out is that who are the populations who can benefit from an additional booster at this time? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the two really you know, core um, criteria. Now, I mean, things can change over time. You know, we can see uh, waning off immunity occur. So far, we haven't seen it here in Ontario and in Canada, um, but other provinces have, but other, sorry, other countries have. And But these countries have also taken a different approach to their dosing interval than we did here in Canada. So a lot is still yet to be seen. I Mm. think we'll get more information in the coming months. But so far, it is incredibly reassuring to see how effective the vaccines really are, especially in preventing severe illness. I need, I only got 60 seconds, but I do want to get this in the antiviral pill. And we discussed it yesterday with Dr. Bogosh that Merck is testing. The data looks really good, but it's, it's as some say data by press release. Are you encouraged by that? People, you know, tend to roll their eyes and they think, Oh, okay. Another pill. But, but these pills are going to become commonplace. That was bound to happen. Um, that will be able to, to make, you know, to change severe cases to, to moderate cases. And, and yes, get it to the point where it is more actually like the flu if you get COVID positive? Yeah, I mean, I think that getting, uh, you know, other therapies is extremely promising and reassuring. We should be seeing more of these happen, in fact, in the next few months. Um, But the issue with a lot of these antiviral, this this Merck antiviral, for instance, is you have to give it within five days of actually getting symptoms, right? So there's a timing issue there as well. Um, And then are we going to have access? You know, is everyone going to be able to just go to their pharmacy and get it? Are we going to reimburse? All of these things are still big question marks. Um, and, And I think that really has to be ironed out before we get to a place where we're comfortable with therapies in, uh, instead of just prevention, which I think right now is our best course of action is prevention. And that means getting vaccinated. Yeah, this may be months away and then getting kids vaccinated as well, which is something exactly. we'll talk about next week. Uh, thanks very much, Sabina, for the time. Love having you on as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. So not dissimilar uh, from what we hope to experience with the U.S., uh, Portugal. If you've gone to mainland Portugal and I I got to go there the summer of Euro 2004. I was getting married that summer. I went in June. I'm getting married in July of 2004. Um, and I had a great time. Rented a car. This great Volkswagen thing. I think it's the only time I've ever put diesel fuel in a car. I had to keep remembering. Um, and a dri- and uh, you're able to drive on the right side of the road. Um, but Liz- you go Lisbon to Porto, go into matches. That's the year Cristiano Ronaldo debuted for Portugal. I I kill to go back. Kill to go back to Portugal. And they've done really, really well with COVID. Um, and today, uh, in the last couple of days, I see this, uh, UK visitors to mainland Portugal used to have to provide a test. The government in Lisbon says, don't worry about a test. 
Just make sure you're fully vaccinated and prove it. We're hoping that's the case when the U.S. border opens. Uh, I want to bring on Vasco Cotovio, a CNN field producer who works out of London but knows Portugal uh, like uh, the back of his hand. Vasco, thanks very much for coming on. I, I appreciate the time. You're welcome. Tell it's nice to be on. Yeah, uh, Portugal's amazing, eh? Like, how, how would you even describe it? I, I'm not sure I did it justice, but uh, it's been 17 years since I've been there. What a country. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I think you did justice. I think you did it justice. <laughs> I'm a bit biased, though, uh, having been born and raised in Lisbon. <laughs> uh, how old were you when Euro, when the Euro 2004 was on? You're younger than me, I bet. But how how old were I, you when that was happening? I think I was yeah, I was 16. Yeah, oh 16. man, you hit the oh you hit the jack being that young and you know no responsibility. And uh, we went to the Algarve. Uh, my God, like just incredible. Um, what's gone so well? Tell our listeners in Toronto, another international city like Lisbon in its own right, what's gone so well? You were getting flattened in uh, January, February of 2021 via COVID. How did it turn around? Well, I think that uh, instilled a sense of urgency, not just into the leaders, but also the population that something needed to change. And when va the vaccination campaign started, uh, people were very keen to get vaccinated just to be able to resume their normal lives and to avoid another peak like the one we had in January. As you said, the vaccination campaign has gone tremendously well. We, I believe the country now has more than 85% of the population vaccinated. And that's especially striking if you think that 12% can't be vaccinated because they're under 12s and the vaccine still hasn't been approved for them. So that leaves you with 88% of the population that can be vaccinated. And of those 85%, so that's just a 3% margin of people who still haven't gotten their vaccines yet. And one, one of the reasons why it's been so successful is that there's a history, obviously, of being pro-vaccines uh, mm. in Portugal, but also the way the campaign was led. A, a few weeks ago, I spoke to Vice Admiral Enrique Gouveia-Mel. He's sort of like the, the man who spearheaded the vaccine campaign. And he says, you know, the trick was clear communication and obviously instilling a sense of urgency, making sure that people knew this was serious. We've got, as you can imagine, in North America, I would argue this is happening in the UK, too. The word endemic is being utilized a lot, Vasco, mm -hmm. in, in terms of, well, we're going to have to live with the virus. Now, that was deemed as almost you know, pretty insensitive a year ago at this time, because the idea was, well, can we stamp it out? Can we can we put our foot on it, uh, choke it down and, and make it virtually nothing? And and the and, and epidemiologists don't feel that way. That said, in Portugal, it's pretty close to that. Like for all of us who thought, well, we'll get vaccines going and we'll reach some element of herd immunity. The Delta variant may have changed that. But Portugal is must must feel they're at herd immunity right now with that kind of vaccination rate. Well, the, the vice admiral I spoke with, he said that we were already experiencing some sort of immunity. Uh, it doesn't mean that people won't still won't get the virus, but mm -hmm. transmission rates are much lower now. And what you were what we were experiencing in Portugal is that despite uh, case numbers being relatively high compared to what they were when we were in full lockdown, there's a lot less uh, people being admitted to hospitals. There's a lot less people in ICUs. So there's definitely a, a, an impact that the vaccine is, is having. And, and critically, there's a lot less people dying from the virus. It's really fascinating uh, how well it's gone. Vasco Cotovio is joining us, uh, CNN field producer out of London, but uh, Portuguese. And we're talking about how well Portugal has done with the vaccine. Look, um, Portuguese people are on social media just like the rest of us. I'm sure they watch coverage from the United States and the UK. There are campaigns of disinformation. There's a, a flood of of, you know, I, I often cringe at even some of the headlines, some of the news stories about some of the breakout cases. Um, it doesn't seem to have deterred, uh, uh, you know, the Portuguese people. Public health officials seem to be saying the right things to keep the trust of, of the citizens. You're absolutely right. There's another thing, though, that there isn't that much of a tradition of, of an anti-vax movement in Portugal. That's one thing mm -hmm. that we need to, uh, you know, make sure people understand. The, the vaccination programs for other vaccines have gone tremendously well. There was a certain hesitance uh, at the beginning, at the early stages of the vaccination program, mostly because these vaccines were developed much more quickly than people were used to. But, and this is one thing that might have helped 
people who were maybe on the fence over whether or not they would or should get the vaccine, which was that there were very strict uh, restrictions for going to, out to restaurants, going to you know, other, other entertainment venues. And basically the government said, you either get a COVID test or you have to provide a vaccine certificate. Now, right. this meant that maybe some people try to stick with the tests and tests are actually quite cheap in Portugal. There's uh, a city, city halls usually uh, provide them for free. But it is still a logistical hurdle. You know, if I, I want to go out for dinner, I need to get tested. It's not a very pleasant experience, as I'm sure yeah. you, <laughs> your viewers have, have, <laughs> have tried it out yourselves. And, you know, people just decided it's too much of a hassle. I'll just get tested. I'll just get vaccinated. I'll present the certificate and I can carry on with my life. And that is certainly something that uh, helped the program reach the current levels that it's at. Last thing for you, I, I, the, the, the time between doses, I know Israel did a phenomenal job out of the gate getting their population vaccinated. So many complexities, obviously, in Israel in doing that. Um, and, and, but what they, what they get accused of and what they get criticized for now is they gave their second dose too fast. So the efficacy didn't last. They didn't spread the doses out. They were like, take your first vaccine, then three weeks later, take your second. It looks like Portugal, um, and a lot of this is flying by the seat of their pants, but it looks like they've gotten phenomenal advice in terms of spreading those doses out because there hasn't been a need to to go bo- go crazy with boosters. Uh, it, was the was the dosage spread out properly? It looks like it must have been. Well, they in Portugal they just follow the recommendations from the pharmaceutical companies. I believe Pfizer recommends twenty one days. Uh, between doses and i think uh, this is exactly what the country did uh, for all the vaccines i think the issue with israel is that after israel reached the certain threshold of people vaccinated um, there was still a, a lot of hesitance there were still a lot of people who didn't want to get vaccinated and it didn't go beyond that so the virus kept circulating amongst the those people whereas in portugal People just kept going and restrictions were still in place. So so basically what it meant was that you didn't have that much virus circulating until the this, this high level, this elevated threshold of people fully vaccinated against COVID vaccine, uh, sorry, against the COVID-19 virus was reached. So you, I guess at a certain point when when Portugal started opening up, there was a, a larger po- percentage of the population that was already fully vaccinated. Mm, interesting. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and talking. Maybe next time we'll we'll just talk uh, soccer. Um, you know, like when they lose to Greece in the Euro twenty thousand. That, that's your, that's oh the God. worst. Right. Oh that's God. the worst day of your life when oh. you're when you're sixteen. Oh. But twelve oh. years later, when you're twenty eight, you're vindicated and they win. No, right. No one told me I was going to be trolled. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm no troll. I've been called worse than that. But when you're twenty eight uh. and Portugal wins Euro twenty sixteen in France, yes. it exercises all your demons, doesn't it? It takes yeah, the no, exactly, exactly. The, the worst I day of your to focus on the positive. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do on this show ninety percent of the time. I loved having you on. Thanks very much. I hope we can do this again sometime. Congra- congratulations on how great your uh, your country's done. I think it's a it's a model uh, for all all of us to follow. Sounds good. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, that is uh, Vasco Cotovio. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We really do appreciate it. Can't do the show without the amazing Rob Trevison, the equally amazing Sheba Siddiqui, and Dave Bradley uh, in our newsroom. Um, it's an incredible, incredible experience. And this show keeps growing and growing and getting better and better. And the audience participation is a big, big reason why. So thank you for that. We have a live show tomorrow. If you uh, want to catch us in the car, on your commute, or at home on the Radio Player Canada app, you can do that there too. Thanks again for checking us out, and we appreciate your time. We know how valuable it is. See you soon.